five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, my guest is Brigadier General Michael Adamson. He assumed the role of RCAF Director General Space and Joint Force Space Component Commander in June of 2020. Today, we're going to discuss how Canada's armed forces is adapting to an increasing congested, contested, and competitive space environment. Welcome. Uh, General Adamson to the Space uh, Economy Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to chat with you today. Thanks, Mark. All right. So um, you've been in the job uh, for less than a year, since July of 2020, and you don't have a background in space. So what has been your biggest challenge in, in getting up to speed? Um, it's, it's been an interesting uh, few months for sure. I, uh, I say, you know, I learn something new every day. I probably learn 20 or 30 new things every day. So certainly a very steep learning curve. Um, I think operationally looking at space and, and what it provides as a, as a intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capability is, um, is familiar to me from a CP140 Aurora background. That kind of ISR tasking was certainly our bread and butter. So the principles behind ISR, um, you know, the uh, dwell time, persistence of sensors, and those kinds of things, uh, I was already familiar with. Um, and certainly, uh, as a navigator, um, you know, I've used or availed myself of space sensors, whether it be GPS or, or SATCOM or what have you. Um, Knitting all of that together, actually, in, in the larger Canadian Forces context, um, in terms of what the myriad of capabilities that are available to our operators has been an interesting uh, journey, certainly, and one that I've learned a lot about. Um, the other piece is understanding what the, the Canadian Forces and D&D space enterprise is uh, across the entire uh, organization or the department. Um, I think simplistically, one would assume that the, uh, the individual who's called DG Space is probably um, the one responsible for, for all those things. Uh, and as it turns out, we have stakeholders um, with equities in, in a number of different aspects of the department, whether it be CF Intcom, Intelligence Command, or within Materiel Group or Information Management Group. So um, it's understanding where all those bits and pieces are uh, and then understanding how we're all going to uh, work together towards a common goal, which, of course, is, is delivering capability and space-enabled uh, capabilities for the operators out there. So I think, yeah, trying to understand all of that piece and, and how it all goes together has probably been one of the challenges. Of course, the other one is understanding what difference between orbits. I'm, uh, I am by no means a subject matter expert in it, uh, but uh, I've got lots of smart people around me who explain to me some of the science on, on a basic level and uh, bring me up to speed. Well, as a navigator, it shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> no. um, in the last few years, uh, the role of space in Canada's Department of National Defense, Canadian Armed Forces, has been undergoing some changes. The RCA, RCAF is now the authority for space. Within the RCAF, there are now two director generals with responsibilities for the space domain. Yourself as DG Space and Joint Force Component Commander, and Brigadier General uh, Colin Kiever is DG Air and Space Force Development. I noticed that General Kiever gets the Space Force title, but seriously, can you briefly describe uh, yours and General Kiever's separate roles and how they work together? Certainly. 
Um, I think uh, taking the organizing back, organization back to when uh, it was originally nested within the, uh, the BCBS group with CFD, um, you know, the Chief of Force Development, uh, DG Space was the one-stop shop for, for all of these aspects, whether it be um, sort of management of the projects or, uh, or putting forward a strategy moving forward right through to the enablers. Um, with our folks at the Canadian Space Operations Center at, uh, at Startup. Um, when that was then taken out of the Vices organization and gifted, if you will, to the, uh, the Air Force for shepherding, um, I think there was, came with that an expectation that we were going to be able to leverage the significant um, staff and resource capabilities of the Air Force to sort of help shepherd the space enterprise along. Um, so initially, you know, DG Space nested within the Air Force, uh, and then from there, uh, an ongoing process of trying to determine what's the best way within the Air Force to marshal all those resources to advance the space program. Um, obviously, there is a whole piece of work regarding uh, projects, whether it be identification of capabilities or future capabilities, and then taking those projects through the various phases of the, uh, of the project approval process. Um, within the Air Force, uh, Director General of Air Force Development uh, was responsible for that for the Air Force writ large, and it just made sense then to take the space elements and include them in that portfolio as well. So as a result of that, Director General Air Force Development became Director General Air and Space Force Development um, and added things like satellite uh, projects and capabilities to their portfolio, uh, which is great. It allows us to then let them concentrate on that. That's where those project experts are. Uh, so that left the uh, a somewhat smaller DG space organization uh, within which there are some readiness functions. And so there is a, a plan afoot to take some of the, the readiness capabilities, which is mostly a staffing effort, and seed that into DG air readiness, which will be DG air and space readiness. So then there will be a third general that has space within his title or her title. Uh, and then that leaves DG, Air, DG Space. Um, so what is left is a couple of different responsibilities for, uh, for the person in my position. The first is DG Space is an institutional responsibility, um, answerable to the commander of the Air Force for advancing that space program writ large, sort of herding all of those various cats across the department uh, into, a, into a single direction to try and make sure we're advancing the program. So there's that, and within the DG space responsibility, that includes my interactions with some of our allied partners, uh, talking to them sort of on behalf of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, and advancing those alliance capabilities as well. The second hat that I wear is the operational side of it, which is the Joint Force Space Component Commander. And in that respect, I'm answerable or responsive to uh, the Force Employers Commander of uh, Joint Operations Command, uh, Special Operations Command, and of course, NORAD in providing actual space effects for the operators out there. So again, my two hats, sort of institutional and operational, concerned with sort of the immediate uh, requirement and delivery of space effects, uh, and then readiness and force development taken out of that original organization and, and now uh, parceled out to other parts of the Air Force. I'm curious, it just, I just had a thought, which is um, as uh, space has been evolving within the Canadian Armed Forces and the, the structure has been changing, uh, have, have you taken into account any of the changes or been influenced at all by what's been happening in the States with the Space Force being stood up? Absolutely. I think that um, the stand-up of the U.S. Space Force and of the combatant commander of SpaceCom, um, I think, is a recognition of, A, the increasing importance of space in all manner of operations across all domains, uh, in all theaters of operations around the world. Um, 
I don't think there's any other nation other than the United States that could do it in such a large fashion as standing up an entire new service with the Space Force uh, and a new Spacecom. However, what we're finding is perhaps um, on a more modest level, Canada's efforts are similarly inclined, recognizing the importance of space, the ubiquitous uh, ubiquity of, of space in all of our operations. And we're seeing that with our allies as well. I routinely engage with uh, our allies in say the UK and Australia, for instance, uh, similar to us. They, uh, they watch with interest perhaps what the US is doing, um, but certainly uh, within their own context are, are moving their organizations and evolving their organizations uh, to be able to be responsive as well. Um, obviously on a smaller scale than what we're seeing south of the border. Now, what can you tell me about the Canadian Armed Forces moving forward and standing up a space division as part of the process? I think that ties exactly into what, uh, what we were just talking about. I think this recognition of the increasing importance of, of space in all of our operations is, is driving a, probably a never-ending evolution of the organization. So as we've taken off those readiness and force development pieces and nested them elsewhere in the Air Force, we look at what's left, which is basically the delivery of capability uh, and for force employers. Um, and when we look at that in the space context and, and look at what we're doing in the Air Force um, in the air power context, what what's left of my organization and what it's delivering is very similar to what one Canadian Air Division in Winnipeg delivers for the rest of the Canadian Armed Forces in terms of air power. So if that is perhaps the model that we want to use, uh, then it would make sense and perhaps we have an air division, uh, we probably have a space division as well. Um, obviously a smaller organization than what we have in the air division, but one that has the same kind of aims, uh, the delivery of space effects uh, for those force employers that are going out the door. So to that end, we have a proposal. It's with the, um, the VCDS organization at the moment and going through all the appropriate staffing uh, hoops. And uh, we're hoping that hopefully within the next 12 to 18 months, we'll be able to announce the stand-up of a space division. Uh, subordinate to that division will be uh, some some. Uh, squadrons, an operations squadron, a support squadron, and an advanced uh, effects squadron uh, that will be uh, carrying on the business that we're doing now, uh, just within a slightly different construct and a little more reflective, I think, of where we are nested now in the larger CAF. And now let's talk about the workforce. How fast are you growing uh, Canada's space forces, both uniform and public service, and how has adding more public service helped? So within the uh, the last uh, defense policy, strong, secure, and engaged, uh, there was a um, explicit mention of the, uh, the need to grow uh, the space capabilities, uh, both in terms of, of platforms and, of course, in the, uh, the size of the workforce as well on the cadre. Um, we're increasing probably from where we were in 2017, uh, looking to perhaps double our size in terms of people across the department that are involved in the delivery of, of space capabilities and enablers. So not just within DG space, but for instance, um, including personnel within CF Intcom, who would provide you know, analysis of some of the, uh, the geo uh, int products, um, folks within uh, the material group and delivery of space, um, but also you know, obviously included within my organization and across the, uh, the Air Force um, and all of that. What we're looking to do is probably uh, at the moment, sort of grow ourselves to about uh, 270, 280 personnel um, that would be involved in the space enterprise across the department. Uh, that's roughly twice what we were to begin with in 2017. And I would say that growth is probably equally split between uniform and civilian personnel. Um, and it would uh, come as no surprise that uh, having civilian personnel in those positions adds a level of, um, of, uh, of 
a, a static environment, if you will. You know, we don't have military personnel that are that are posted out. Uh, you end up with a civilian employee that's able to um, spend enough time within the position and the job to become a subject matter expert, to have that, uh, that corporate knowledge and experience, to be able to uh, advance uh, some of the portfolios and projects. So I think uh, a hugely important step that we include um, uh, a significant civilian cadre in that. And when you say 270 to 280, does that take into account everyone who has some sort of role within the Canadian Armed Forces geared towards space, or is that just strictly on the space side? No, that would uh, that would be sort of uh, everyone across the Canadian Armed Forces. So that would include plus personnel, like I said, within CFINCOM, for instance, to be uh, to provide intelligence analysis, um, hiring civilian employees to work uh, within the project world, uh, within space requirements, uh, and that kind of thing. So it would be a growing of the overall space cadre, not just within the Air Force. And in terms of where these people are located, are they mostly, and I'm just going to throw out some names here, Ottawa, North Bay, and some in Colorado Springs, or are there more spread out? elsewhere for the most part they're in the sort of traditional places you would expect obviously within the headquarters construct and, and the project side of the house obviously ottawa um and uh would go without saying we also then retain the positions that we have uh, with our long-standing norad relationships so canadian forces personnel that would be done in colorado springs uh working within norad but also working with space force and space com uh, space command in that regard um, we would include uh, folks, we've got people that will be down in Vandenberg, California as well, which is uh, where they've got the Combined Space Operations Center for the United States Space Force. Um, we've got our first person heading out the door in a space capacity to NATO this coming summer. NATO has just recently, within the last year and a half or so, announced the recognition of space as a operational domain, and they've announced they're standing up a space center in Ramstein. So we've got uh, a Canadian officer that will be heading in there to uh, be part of the standing up of that. That capability and we continue to watch you know what our other allies are doing as well and you know, potentially down the road other exchange opportunities with perhaps some of our other uh, five eyes nations but uh, yeah th those are the the places where we've got folks nested now and so as you're growing uh the canadian space forces um how is training being advanced and i and i noticed i, I just looked at the website today and the, they're now offering space tra or they may have been offering for a while a space operation courses for executives uh to prepare them well it's uh it's, it's an interesting uh, observation but actually it's a really good course and was the first thing that i did uh when i found out i was coming into this job as a very quick primer to sort of get me um, get my feet wet, if you will. So we've got space operations courses that run from you know one to uh, one to a couple weeks, which are designed to create a level of familiarity within the Canadian Armed Forces about what space is doing, what are the capabilities that are out there, how can you make them work for you, what can you do uh, to help them uh, um, advance the cause as well. And, and it's designed for all levels of, of operators and leadership within the Canadian Armed Forces. So, um, and we use the Space Ops uh, course executive, for example, which provides that sort of strategic overview of, of space. We don't need to go into all of the, uh, the high level math in terms of uh, what it takes to launch a satellite, um, but it provides the information in terms of what are the capabilities that are out there, what are our allied um, and alliance capabilities, perhaps what are some of the adversarial capabilities. Um, we talk about some of the just basic tenets and premises of operating in space and what makes it challenging. Um, and then 
at that level or for that course as well, it's also important they understand some of the, the law and policy behind space as well, because we're sort of targeting that course towards a strategic leader who may need to have a, a you know a passing familiarity with some of those other aspects. So um, we've got this sort of homegrown training program that we've got that will get folks um, certainly interested or introduced to the space domain, uh, but we also have access to all of um, a number of allied training uh, systems as well. Uh, certainly for folks that are gonna be working with the Americans down in Colorado or Vandenberg, uh, part and parcel of their uh, posting to those positions is to undertake a number of more rigorous um, space courses that are offered by Space Force. Now I'm just going to throw this out there. We hadn't discussed this in our pre-interview, and it's something I just thought of. But eh, you know, you know, every now and then you come up with an interesting question uh, to throw you a curve. You know, uh, we have Canadian astronauts that have had or have a background in the military. Uh, could there conceivably be a um, Canadian? astronaut from the Canadian Armed Forces that is not going through the uh, Canadian Space Agency? So in other words, strictly a military astronaut? I don't know that we would, uh, conceivably, who knows what could happen in, in out years. But at the moment, certainly the only program we've got to develop, nurture, care and feed and employ astronauts is through the Canadian Space Agency. Um, you know, I, likewise, I think even if you look down in the States, um, you know, most, well, their astronaut program is, is through NASA as well. You know, they don't have uniquely military astronauts, uh, despite what you might have seen on Netflix. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, not to say that that'll never happen, but at the moment, uh, whether you're a military member or you're a civilian, I think uh, the road to space from an astronaut program is probably through the CSA for the foreseeable future. Okay. Uh, in our pre-interview, uh, it was clear to me that one of the topics that consumes your time uh, and is of concern to many governments globally is responsible behavior in space. From where, from where you sit, uh, what are the challenges uh, you see with uh, responsible uh, behavior in space? It, it absolutely is a concern, and it's one that has become even more of a concern since I got in this job last summer. Um, so... Responsible behaviors in space can encompass any number of actions. It can be from, you know, having um, a program in place to deorbit um, satellites that are no longer functioning. It can be, um, you know, the cleanup of, of some of the debris that is in space. Um, it can be the traffic management, if you will, of, of what's going on in space. What I've noticed over the last few months, and I'm, and I'm not alone, certainly uh, all of our allies have noticed this as well, is the incredible proliferation of um, activity in, in all orbits. But I mean, let's look at uh, Starlink for as an example. I think uh, they launched last week another 60 satellites, which brings them up to somewhere in the order of 1,400 satellites or, or somewhere in there. And that's in, you know, within the last couple of years. Now, not to say that they're not doing it responsibly, but in order to have that level of activity in, in the low Earth orbit constellation, um, I think it behooves us to understand perhaps, or at least establish some rules of the road, understand what others are doing, understand how we can perhaps um, mitigate or avoid situations where there would be potential collisions or conjunctions. Um, and I think it means undertaking behaviors that aren't risky, that could potentially result in, in the creation of debris. And that would include, 
for instance, anti-satellite uh, weapon testing. We've, we've seen testing in the past over the last few years, um, some of which has created debris that was uh, that burned up in the atmosphere, some of it which will remain in orbit uh, for the foreseeable future. I think we would all agree that that's probably not responsible behaviors. Um, and so Canada is joining the international community, whether it be within the United Nations um, or with our alliance partners to, uh, to talk about responsible behaviors. And um, if we're gonna talk about it, we certainly need to uh, walk the walk um, and, and model those behaviors as well. And, and the Canadian uh, government and certainly the Canadian Armed Forces is extremely interested in making sure that uh, we get that message out because it is only going to get busier um, in space as, uh, as we've seen just over the last uh, 18 months or so. I can't imagine the pace of launches um, and the uh, and the increase in the number of satellites in orbit is uh, is going to go down at all. So it's it's absolutely incredible to see, um, which is impressive. And uh, but I think it's also a bit of a uh, point for some concern. Now, since we last talked, uh, and on this topic, uh, the Rand Corporation published a report called "Responsible Space Behavior for the New Space Era," and it discussed the um, uh, key problems. Uh, and the barriers to action and some possible solutions. Now, you've touched on probably, I think, all of the uh, key problems. So well done on that. Uh, but some of the barriers to action uh, include uh, motivations and interest and the lack of rule uh, of law uh, frameworks. Um, what are some of the paths forwards in making sure all actors behave responsibility, uh, responsibly in space? Yeah, it's a great question and it's a great challenge because I think it was, it was different when the only organizations or entities that were going into space were governments. Um, you know, it was an expensive proposition and it was the purview of states to, to launch rockets and, and put satellites in space. Um, and, you know, governments and a international rules-based order were beholden to certain behaviors, you know, and were certainly uh, predictable in, in some of their behaviors. And so you could count on um, certain aspects of diplomacy and, and international interaction to sort of guide perhaps how you were going to uh, interact with other states. What we're seeing now with this incredible um, um, evolution of, of space into the commercial sector and, and private industry means that you have significant private actors that aren't beholden to governments, for instance, that are, you know, looking to uh, engage in space activities um, because there's a business case for it. Uh, you know, they're able to uh, identify a market uh, and, and there's income and, and shareholders to be pleased and all of that good stuff. So the question then becomes, well, how do you motivate those players as well um, in, to behave appropriately? And I think what we can do is um, certainly through international fora, we can try and um, legislate or, or codify what those behaviors might look like. Uh, we can incentivize responsible behaviors. We can call out irresponsible behaviors. Uh, I don't think anybody likes to get bad press. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a nation state or you're you know, a private company. Um, and like I said, we can model those behaviors as well. Um, and something else that I've seen in, in other elements, not just in space, but where you've got uh, best practices that can be... Um, sent out to uh, to commercial actors to sort of say hey, listen you know these are the kinds of things we would like you to consider um you know your for your spacefaring program um and uh and then again sort of count on them to be uh, to be good responsible and corporate partners uh moving forward um it's going to be a challenge i think because you know if, if you've got uh, a carrot there's got to be a stick and i'm not sure how we do all of that um, moving forward. Uh, at the moment, I think it's an influence operation. 
And I think we want to want those actors to behave responsibly. We're all in it. I mean, if somebody messes up and there's a collision in space, it threatens everyone's assets uh, if there's a debris problem, right? So I think it behooves all of us, um, commercial or state actors, to act responsibly. And, uh, and I think we can sort of try and count on that common sense and rational thought behavior um, as we go forward. And in terms of the urgency for this, I mean, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there were very few actors in space. Today, uh, and, and not, in, not including the commercial actors, I'm just talking about uh, state actors now. I mean, the number of emerging space nations around the world is, is astounding. And so, you know, is there a real sense of urgency that we need to get the rule of law, some frameworks into place now before some emerging nation decides to do something that others may perceive as, um, you know, uh, not responsible behavior? I, I think so. And I think we have, uh, I mean, Canada has participated most recently in, uh, in UN conferences on this very item. Um, you know, I know that uh, talking to my policy colleagues, um, that they're very keen on, on making sure that we can sort of advance this kind of legislation. Um, I know that there's talk in certain circles, uh, not within D&D at the moment, but I've, you see in open source news about within the U.S., them talking about uh, the Commerce Department sort of looking at some kind of traffic management system, if you will, um, you know, outside of, out of DOD or military needs, um, but some kind of rules of the road or codification. I, I think the time is certainly upon us to think about these things, as you've stated. Uh, it is getting incredibly busy, uh, congested, contested, and competitive out there. Um, and I think it's uh, probably behooves all of us to sort of figure out what those best behaviors, uh, responsible behaviors, and rules of the road are going to be going forward. Yeah, so, and I was talking about the state actors, but of course, the immediate thing right now is uh, uh, with space traffic management is all these constellations. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're just getting started, yeah. <laughs> and and SpaceX has put you know fourteen hundred odd satellites in the last you know less than two years. Uh, you know, which is double, uh, more than double what was already there. Uh, active satellites, yeah. that is, and um, you know when you start factoring in. Uh, Canada's Telesat. Uh, then you have small players like Kepler's uh, Communications in Canada, which is looking at putting up almost 500 satellites of their own. Now you start talking about Amazon's uh, Kuiper, you know, which is looking at what uh, 14,000 something like that. China is now going, you know, with a big uh, constellation of their own. You know, we're talking tens of thousands of satellites in this low Earth orbit environment. We have to have some sort of coordinated uh, space traffic management. So I'm curious, you know, a lot of the, uh, and I think I read something about this recently that, you know, up until, well, even today, a lot of space traffic management has been marshaled through, you know, U.S. Uh, Air Force, uh, where they keep track of everything. Uh, but I think they're at the point now where we need a commercial solution that's that's global. Is that something you see, you see that uh, is going to come down the road where we have some commercial solution or government-sponsored commercial solution partnership where we can track, uh, you know, and get other governments involved in, in this? I think so. I think that's just a natural evolution. Of, of what's going on. I imagine uh, years ago, uh, air travel was significantly more Wild West than it is now. Uh, people came and went as they saw fit. 
uh, and we saw the uh, the stand-up of uh, ICAO, the International uh, Civil Aviation Organization. So, um, you know, there was a, a recognition that uh, somebody needed to lay down some of the rules of the road and establish things like air routes and, and altitude restrictions and what have you, and, uh, and, and there we went. So I think we're probably getting to the point where um, the same kind of realization or aha moment is, is upon us, where we go, you know, some kind of similar uh, body, similar to ICAO, um, who runs it, where it's nested, uh, you know, it's going to be necessarily um, international. So obviously, you're going to need to have uh, buy-in from around the world. Um, but yeah, I think probably it, it's a worthwhile uh, endeavor. I, I don't know who um, can undertake something of that magnitude at the moment. Um, but I, you know, I know that it's being talked about. Um, and I think it's probably getting more important as we're not just talking about unmanned vehicles out there in terms of satellites, but we're seeing um, a return to or a, a, a increase in human spaceflight, um, not just with, with ISS, but now obviously, um, you know, uh, other endeavors, whether or not be, uh, you know, ambitions to go to the moon or ambitions to go to Mars, um, you know, we're going to see more humans uh, trying to pick their way through those LEO constellations to try and get a little bit further out as well. So, um, yeah, I think the time is right to have this discussion. Um, I'm just not sure who leads it. Yeah, yeah, and we have SpaceX, uh, which has one tourist mission this year, and another one uh, in next year. So uh, that's happening. And then uh, this week, um, so this is uh, May the third, and this podcast won't go out towards till, till the end of May. But uh, in two days from now, uh, Blue Origin is going to announce the pricing for their uh, suborbital tourism, yeah. um, and. Um, uh, you know, that's another player that, you know, I think they're going to be uh, uh, sending up flights maybe even this year with tourists. So, all right. Now, uh, switching gears a little bit and going back to uh, Canadian Armed Forces, um, Canada is a member of the Combined Space Operations, uh, dubbed Five Eyes. Uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how Combined Space Operations are evolving and Canada's uh, evolving role in it as well. Right. So Combined Space Operations is um, a seven eyes organization, if you will. So it's Canada, UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, um, and then uh, France and Germany. Um, and basically, it's a, a collection of, of like-minded nations that have got uh, spacefaring capabilities that um, certainly is a, tr a traditional alliance forum, you know, countries and nations that we would talk to um, regularly anyways. Uh, but in bringing them together, it's given us an opportunity to have a forum to discuss things like responsible behaviors, uh, to talk about um, operations, to talk about mutual support to operations. Um, each of those nations brings something with it, which is perhaps a little bit different than the other nations. Uh, but through that combined space operations, or CSPO as it's abbreviated, we're able to leverage um, those capabilities of our partners. So, you know, if something is going on in, uh, in the theater of operations and we need overhead uh, imagery or we need, um, you know, access to uh, procure protected uh, SATCOM or we need synthetic aperture radar imagery or what have you, um, we're able to leverage everyone else's uh, capabilities through space support requests uh, in order to support our own operations. And certainly, um, we do it on a regular basis, uh, both asking for and providing support uh, to the U.S. And uh, it can be as simple as, for instance, having search and rescue forces on standby during these manned missions that we were talking about. So as, uh, as for instance, a Crew Dragon launches or is being recovered, as it moves through the Canadian area of responsibility, um, there is a support request that says, hey, can you have some SAR assets uh, standing by just in case? 
uh, and then up to and including um, requests for support from space capabilities or space enablers. So it works really, really well. Um, from an operations perspective, it's allowing us to sort of work our way through as all of our organizations are evolving, as we talked about earlier, to sort of understand the pace and, and keep track of what our allies and our friends are doing as well, so that we're sort of moving together with them. It allows us to compare what are very similar policy approaches to some of these, um, although there might be nuanced differences depending on whether or not you're Australian or German or Canadian. But um, a lot of the, um, the sub sort of groups that work under the umbrella or rubric of CSPO, uh, there's an operations working group, uh, a capabilities and architecture working group, and a policy and legal working group. And it just provides a forum for those seven nations to get together and discuss areas of common interest uh, and where we can perhaps um, you know, use perhaps similar systems in order to be able to work together uh, and, and support each other in operations. So it's actually, uh, it's worked out uh, really, really well, a really important, I think, alliance organization for us um, and one that uh, we certainly are interested in nurturing as we go forward. So I just have a couple more questions and they relate to satellites. Uh, the RadarSat uh, Constellation mission has been uh, very successful uh, and is oversubscribed. Uh, it's a follow-on. Uh, it's a follow-on will be separated into what I see as three areas, civil, defense, and commercial. Uh, the Canadian Space Agency is looking at the civil side, while D&D is looking uh, to go forward with uh, the defense-enhanced uh, surveillance from space project, uh, which will have new capabilities uh, and separate from um, uh, the civil efforts. The commercial sector is developing their own programs such as MDA's SAR Next. So how has RCM helped the Canadian Armed Forces uh, and how will the Defence Enhanced Surveillance from Space Project build on that uh, capability? We'll start with that. Well, I think it, even before RCM, if we go back to RadarSat too, I think uh, the Canadian Forces um, use of that capability of a synthetic aperture radar capability in orbit, um, it has been a game changer for us. Um, you know, being able to use uh, that SAR product um, and pairing it, for instance, with um, automated identification system, AIS systems uh, for maritime domain awareness um, has been a huge, uh, huge capability that is greatly um, simplified to a certain extent maritime domain awareness. It allows us to understand what's going on in, in, a, uh, in a fairly large area um, with the passes of, of a few passes of satellites, which as somebody in maritime domain awareness in the CP-140, I know how long it can take to do it by eyeball flying from contact to contact in the, in the North Atlantic. So a huge capability for us, um, and not just for the Canadian maritime approaches, but obviously it's, it's worldwide. Uh, so whether we're talking RadarSat2 or RCM, um, you know, any area of operations that we might find ourselves, Canadian forces, um, we're able to provide this sort of combined uh, near real-time ship detection picture and, and what have you um, for intelligence purposes to support operations. All that to say is really good. As you stated though, oversubscribed. I mean, RCM uh, is a constellation of three satellites and uh, it is a government of Canada or whole of government enterprise. Um, and obviously um, lots of goodness coming out of that, whether you're uh, Environment Canada or NRCAN or CSA, um, lots of departments interested in the various products that, uh, that come from RCM. D&D is just one of them. We're just but one customer with that program. Um, and uh, what we're looking at with, with CSA as we move forward is an understanding that 
Um, obviously, RCM is oversubscribed, so more is better in order to meet everyone's requirements. But while CSA and, and D&D may have similar kinds of sensor requirements, um, I think there is a difference in terms of the mission for each of that. Uh, CSA is looking at um, very much the civil support, the civil department uh, aim, um, a very deliberate sort of collection process to identify whether you know, we're talking about polar ice cap melt or, or forest fires or flooding or, or that kind of thing to provide information to, um, to the civil partners. Whereas D&D is looking for something that perhaps is a little more responsive that can be uh, able to be retasked or redirected based on whether or not there is a security incident or, or something of, uh, of national security import or interest somewhere else, um, oftentimes on, on short notice. So I think we're understanding the fact that um, perhaps what we're looking to get out of the system might be a little bit different than CSA. That said and done, I, I just don't want to discount um, all the great stuff that's come out of working together with them, with Radar Set 2 and RCM. Um, and those projects, the CSA projects and the DND projects, uh, certainly we look out um, uh, on the horizon. Um, there is very likely going to be some kind of uh, capability gap between when we can actually field uh, DESP or, or CSA's follow on project. Um, so we need to look at perhaps. Um, how we're going to maintain that capability in the interim years as well. So we'll continue to work with CSA, um, but I think as we're finding, uh, you can never have too much of a good thing. Uh, and certainly uh, that is a capability that uh, we really value having and our allies value it as well. We're able to certainly um, use that, like I said, within our Alliance framework as well. So a great program going forward. Yeah, and I, I think sort of what I've sort of infer from this is that D&D uh, &D has some um, requirements that are um, sometimes being uh, needed in uh, real time, and you have to task uh, satellites to do something right now, which would uh, at times, you know, interfere with any type of civil um collection that may be ongoing and it does also takes time absolutely so to to, to retask a, a satellite so uh a capability that 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 obviously you, uh canadian armed forces has made the determination that you need absolutely so uh with that uh and, and when th and thinking of the despy program going forward and i know you can't put hard numbers on this but you know, ideally, you know, you know, as a follow on to RCM, what would you like to see? Would I mean, if you had a wish, you know, would you like to see one, two, three, like you would like another three satellites just dedicated to, 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 you know, Canadian Armed Force uses? You know what? I, I'm not even sure that I could say, first of all, I don't know that I'm enough of an expert to be able to comment on how many vehicles would be the ideal. Um, but the other thing that we sort of, as we're looking at this and, and looking at the changing face of technology, um, I don't know what 10 years from now, AI or quantum computing is going to bring to the equation um, such that it, uh, it completely changes the, uh, the landscape in terms of how we look at this information uh, and how we're able then to, uh, to analyze it and, uh, and then turn that into actual, whether it's actionable intelligence or, or information that we can use. Um, so I think just the landscape is changing rapidly. Um, and at the moment, we're still in that sort of looking for um, putting out RFIs and looking for industry to come back and tell us what they think um, would be the best solution. Um, and I'm very conscious of the fact that my, part of my role as not being the project guy is I need to identify what are the requirements? What is it we want out of this? We want persistent overhead surveillance. Uh, we want to be able to um, 
pair that up, for instance, with AIS data so we can identify uh, those vessels that have got AIS against those that don't in the maritime domain. Um, and then with those kinds of requirements, you know, we put that out to industry and uh, some uh, really uh, smart folks there will come back and, and tell us what they think will best need the requirement. Right. The biggest the biggest issue is make sure that there's no gap between what's there now and what's coming on, because there's no guarantee that uh, I mean, the satellites, the three RCM satellites have a, uh, you know, theoretical seven year lifespan. They could last another 20 years, but we could have an event that, you know, something happens to them and they could be gone in two years. Absolutely. So you don't want that uh, that gap. So you have to plan today for what you need in case and also looking uh, uh, looking forward um, in terms of other satellites. Uh, I, and I, I know you can't go into this in, into any great detail because it's not your, uh, you know, your full area. But in terms of the small satellites, uh, and I know that you've got, you know, something like Project Gray J and, and there's some other satellites that you've been looking at. How do small satellites fit in uh, the picture these days for, for the Canadian Armed Forces? I, all I can say is that, you know, in, in looking into it, I know that there are certain R&D projects that are looking at that capability. Um, and, you know, I think we, with some of the smaller programs, happen upon um, something that was a perhaps an experiment or a, or a technology demonstrator um, actually turns into being, you know, something that is actually a, an employable asset. And I'll use Sapphire as an example of that, um, that, uh, you know, went up. And as it turns out, here we are years after it was supposed to be a reach end of life and it's continuing to uh, contribute uh, goodness into the space surveillance network. And I think we'll see similar kinds of things with, with Neosat and that kind of thing. Um, but that is very much uh, part of the ADM and the science and tech world and, um, and, and DRDC uh, and is pretty much outside of my lane. So I, I don't know that I can answer any more than that other than I know that there are programs afoot and uh, you know we watch them with interest. All right. So uh, is there anything that I've missed that you think uh, I should have brought up? <laughs> no, I, I think that covers it. I guess I would just sort of sum up to say that, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, I, I've been in this job for 10 or 11 months now, and um, uh, it is absolutely fascinating to uh, to learn and see what is going on in the space domain. Um, and I am just, I, I didn't know what to expect, but I'm so thrilled to be a part of all of this because it really is um, the best of what is cool and new uh, about technology at the moment. Um, and I don't know anybody uh, that's working within the, the space enterprise, whether within DG Space or in, in one of the other positions across, that doesn't completely love what they're doing. Um, it's been a really interesting uh, trip so far. I'm looking forward to continue uh, working in, the, uh, in this job and, and furthering those things. But um, it's, it's certainly an area of growing concern as well. And we always talk about it being congested and contested and competitive. Um, and I know we said that a year ago um, and probably two years and three years before that, but it really, all you need to do is look at the headlines now and realize that it's, it's all of that plus um, the, the pace and rate of activity increasing uh, and technology increases is just absolutely mind blowing. Um, it's inspiring to think where we might be a year or two or three years from now um, or, or 10 years from now. Um, but it's, uh, it's really cool to be part of it at the moment and, uh, and to be evolving within the, uh, the Air Force and the organization, the space enterprise. Uh, I count myself very lucky and I'm uh, thoroughly enjoying it. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it with you. So thank you. I'm going to throw one last one at you because um, I just thought of this. Um, 
So, you know, we've discussed this and, 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 you know, people who listen to this podcast are going to think space, space, space. And we're, you know, we're talking about RCAF taking over the, the authority of this, but at the same time, you know, I think we, the one point I'd like to make, maybe you can just expand on it before we close out, which is that it's not just space, space, space. It's not just RCAF. It's the Navy. Uh, it's the army and, and, you know, it's fully integrated, right? Yeah. And actually that's a great point. And we were just talking about that this afternoon um, at work. We've got, um, it is a joint capability, you know, and it is, it was the space portfolio was given to the Air Force for care and feeding, but there is no denying that much of what we do supports naval operations and land operations, not just air operations. So we have Army, Air Force and Navy personnel working for me within DG Space and also at the uh, the CANSPOC at the Operations Center. Um, and I think it's extremely important for those other services to, um, to post their folks in to get a better appreciation of of what the Air Force is doing, but what the space um, enterprise is doing, and bring that knowledge back and share that amongst their their peers in the uh, in the Army and the Navy as well. Um, it is a joint force capability, and it is uh, and it affects everyone that goes out the door. We uh, we provide support equally to maritime and land operations as we do to the Air Force. So um, that's a, a really important distinction. Thanks very much for making that. So uh, thank you for being my guest today. Uh, now that we've made contact, uh, hopefully we can stay in contact uh, when you've got some uh, interesting uh, news to share with us. Uh, our audience is always uh, interested to, to hear what's going on. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you. <laughs>